This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Gagne, and today I'm talking to Nick Seaver about his wonderful new book called Computing Taste, Algorithms, and the Makers of Music Recommendation from the University of Chicago Press. This book examines quite wonderfully how uh, the ways that people who make recommender systems account for taste. Nick is Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Program Director in Science, Technology, and Society at Tufts University. Welcome, Nick. It's such a pleasure to have you here today and to talk about your great book. Thanks for having me. So let's dive right in. Uh, I, I really... I. I really enjoyed um, reading the book. You you really deftly explore the you know the social worlds of the around the people and uh, in which the people who make music recommender systems um, are situated. Uh, and so before we get we dig into some you know details of the text and and um, some of the arguments that you make, you know I just want to start out by asking you a little bit about the history of the book and particularly the history of your interest in the topic. Uh, you know how did how did you come to choose this topic so yeah thank you uh it's a great question and i had a weird path to getting to this topic so this was the book that grew out of my dissertation in anthropology which i completed at uh university of california irvine uh and i came into that that graduate program with this project in mind um, for no especially good reason other than that before I was an anthropologist, I was doing a master's in media studies uh, at MIT and I was working on the history of the player piano. So my first academic publication is actually about uh, the history of automatic pianos. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm really interested in questions about automation and music and about the sort of weird relationship between technology, human expression, uh, and music as a kind of cultural domain. What's something that looks like that these days? Because I'm applying to an anthropology program. I got to find something I can do ethnography of. And I literally just thought, I don't know, music recommendation, right? Uh, So I wrote up a proposal. I went to grad school and eventually, you know, a little bit over 10 years later, uh, I had a book uh, about it. So that's that's the sort of unromanticized version of how I... Uh, The more romanticized version is that, you know, I'm really interested in the kinds of curious tensions that emerge in music um, between these two big ideas, right? On the one hand, the idea that music is this kind of expressive, human, emotional uh, form of art that's you know uniquely human, maybe. Um, and on the other, the sort of empirical fact that music relies a lot on technology all over the place to work, right? So instruments, 
uh, audio recording nowadays, you know, recommender systems, streaming, streaming platforms. Uh, and our ideas, cultural ideas about those technologies are different than our ideas about music, right? So there's always in music this fundamental tension, I think, between common sense ideas that we have about, you know, humanness, expressiveness, and so on, and our ideas about technology. And I was just curious, you know, how do people on the ground who have to deal with this as part of their job, how do they deal with this problem, right? Like, what do they think about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm I'm curious, a bit more of a straightforward question, but uh, after such a wonderful, um, nuanced answer, but I'm certainly curious, you know, in the book, you talk about these people as both people who make technology, but also people who are, who care about music, right? And have a vested interest in music as a cultural form, as, you know, a form of human expression. And, you know, I'm curious, did you also go into the project yourself, sort of having the same sort of um, interest in music as a, as a bit of a cultural gatekeeper, right? Are, you know, are, are you the type who really values sort of esoteric, you know, the kind of music that's behind the horizon, as you sort of say later on in your book? Yeah, so I have, I have, as I mentioned in the book, there are a lot of things that I share in common with the people that I studied for this book, right? We have a lot of demographic similarities. I like to think that sometimes, you know, uh, it, in it with a couple of different shakes of the of the randomizer, I would have ended up in their job, right, instead of in mine. It would have been a very plausible thing to have happen. Uh, and so that, you know, gives me a particular perspective on what they're doing, not necessarily a great one or a bad one. Um, but it is, yes, I share, I, I share a lot of their interests in, you know, music technology in discovering music that I haven't heard of before in mucking around with computer music and all of that sort of thing. Um, I had a longstanding interest uh, in experimental music and the sort of history of experimental music in the 20th century uh, that has informed a lot of how I think about some of these systems. And I think in this book, it's sort of latent there in the background. It's not quite quite out in front, but it's definitely been something for me in the background. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, so, who who was the imagined audience for the book, and how would you how would you like them to relate to the book? Oh my gosh! Well, what you say in the book proposal is anybody, anybody who can read. Uh, <laughs> I will say that uh, it's been interesting now that the book has come out and has started to encounter you know the actually existing audience uh, to revisit this question. So when I uh, thought about turning this into a book, there were a few audiences. Like on the on, on the one hand, you know, I'm really an anthropologist uh, uh, at heart. I teach in an anthropology program. I use a lot of anthropological theory. I think it's uh, uh, intellectually productive. Um, but often I find myself writing for audiences that are, you know, in media studies, uh, internet research, all of, you know, communication, all of these kinds of interdisciplines. Um, and I often presenting anthropology to them, right? So saying, hey, here's an idea from anthropology that you may not know about, um, but that you may find useful for your own um, for your own work. So that's been practically a lot of, of what I've done, not just in this book, but in sort of all of my all of my writing to date. Um, but I do have an interest in reaching people who are, you know, folks who are curious about critiques of algorithms, about the consequences of algorithmic processing on culture uh, and trying to get stuff to those people that will help them think, you know, differently, at least, if not more deeply about, you know, what is an algorithm? What do I mean when I say that these things have consequences for culture uh, and so on? So that's kind of where I've been aiming. I will say that it's been funny to see some reviews. They popped out in some some funny venues that are not my target audience so far, like student papers at universities, which is so fun to read. I love seeing 
uh, seeing that, but I've definitely gotten, uh, you know, Google alerts for my name where they say, you know, and I see it's a review of the book and they say like, oh, you know, if you wanted a book that was about how, you know, Spotify is damaging music, it's not this book. Like, you got to find, you got to find a different book. And I said, you know, that's true. That's that is indeed not what this book is about. Yeah. But yeah. I think some people want that book. Uh, yeah. That book exists. It's just not this one. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's great. And you know, one thing I really enjoyed uh, about the book on a, you know, on a personal note is, um, you know, as somebody who is, who is sort of an, you know, under this broad umbrella of an anthropologist of technology who works with questions of how people interact with technology. Um, but from a point where I'm, I'm not technically trained, like I'm not trained as a computer scientist or, or within the more technical aspects of these technologies, I, I really found, you know, um, so useful the way that you you're able to sort of interweave between these two arenas, right? Between the anthropological arena and the technical arena um, in a lot of the chapters, right? Um, like some of the chapters I, I was, I was enthralled by just the amount of technical detail that you provide and the kind of insight that I had um, in the technical aspects of these systems, but never losing sight of the fact that, this is at the end of the day still an application of anthropological ideas to these technicalities, and in fact, I I used your book in as as an example in my intro to anthro course the other day. I was I was introducing them to how to think like an anthropologist, and um, I used it as an example of how um, you know the concept of myth because in in one of the chapters as we'll talk about you apply myth to this idea of, of overloaded information, and I use the book as an example of how one can. Can apply the concept of myth to you know a, a discourse that's prominent within the tech industry um i don't know how it landed but you know it's a big class so <laughs> i'm not sure but you know the point is to say that i think you very you you skillfully sort of um you know uh, uh interconnect those arenas thank you matthew i appreciate yeah. that yeah. <laughs> um you know another thing that um Another thing that's really interesting about your book from an anthropological perspective is the methodology. And I know that you've written about it before um, in the sense that the, the, that doing this research took you to so many different places. Um, and so I'm sort of, I'm curious if you could maybe give us an idea of the kinds of places that you found yourself in as you were gathering data and how you bring all of that together to, uh, you know, contribute to um, methods in the study of um, the people who make technologies, right? Yeah, thank you. That it's a, it's a huge question. Um, methods for doing this kind of work are in their infancy, so to speak, um, sort of. Except that if you look at what I've done in the book, I've done a fairly conventional ethnography uh, in a lot of ways. It's certainly conventional for the way things are, you know, in the field nowadays. Um, but what do I mean by that? So the the material that went into this book um, is a multi sided ethnography like most ethnographies are nowadays i think um i started out by trying to figure out you know if you want to study the people who make music recommender systems right so how do they think what are they dealing with as they try to build these systems um you're going to run into some trouble right away which is that you 
probably won't be able to get inside of a company where people are doing this stuff um, because they don't want you there, right? They, they don't want people to see what they're doing. Um, any publicity is bad publicity uh, for some of these companies, um, especially in relation to the sort of algorithmic uh, insides. And unfortunately, I have to say, I think it's only gotten worse since I did the field work for this, for this book. Um, so what did I do? Well, I started going to conferences. So I would go to conferences uh, for sort of academic industry crossover conferences for people working on recommender systems in any domain. Uh, and another interesting conference, which shows up in the book called ISMIR, which is the International Symposium for Music Information Retrieval, which is a sort of computer science, information science uh, conference about music. Um, and both of those places sort of had recommender system music, music recommender system stuff in them. And so I went to those every year for a few years. Uh, it took a long time. And I was, in the meantime, I was cold emailing people. I was setting up interviews with anyone who had talked to me. I was getting shunted off to the PR person for companies, or I was, you know, talking to someone who was like, I don't understand what you're doing. I was going to meetups. I was doing, trying to do anything to make this sort of stick. I moved to San Francisco for a little bit. I was like, maybe this is the place where I'm going to like find the people. And I did some interviews in San Francisco that ended up in the book and stuff, but never like stayed in a company. Uh, I I made a proposal to the company that I eventually uh, ended up doing fieldwork at called Whisper in the book, um, a formal proposal I said, here's what I want to do. I want to come and do the fieldwork. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. We don't have time. Like we can't do this right now. Uh, and I was really bummed. I thought, you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to study these people? Sorry, this is a very involved way of getting at what ultimately happened, which is that when I went to these two conferences over and over, there was a very small group of people that was at both of them. And so I got to know those people over like a few years because I would just be there <laughs> as not presenting anything, just showing up. And one of them was someone who worked at Whisper, uh, uh, the person that I call Peter in the book. And he said, hey, do you want to study us? And I said, yeah, I do. I do. In fact, I had submitted a proposal to study you uh, and was declined. Uh, and he said, oh, no, I can get you in. And he did. And so, uh, you know, I waited long enough to get to know someone. I pro that was probably a sign I could have asked him a little earlier. But in any case, it happened. And I was able to spend about three months uh, as, a, as a quote unquote intern um, in this company that I call Whisper. Uh, and that was the sort of like ultimate ethnographic sort of I was there bit. But I do have to say that, you know, I don't think that's the only way to study these systems. One of the things that I ended up doing was reimagining what I was interested in as kind of a whole sector, right? So not just one company in particular, not just Whisper, but the sort of whole world that Whisper was a part of. And that's a world you can get at uh, by talking to people, you know, doing, doing these interviews, by going to their events, by keeping track of what people say in public. Like there's a lot of things that you can do um, to make this kind of study work. And I think there's you know, uh, a lot of studying up literature, you know, how to do ethnography of powerful people or elites suggests this. So I, I draw a lot on on work by people like Hugh Gusterson, who studied nuclear scientists and has some wonderful pieces about what he calls a kind of scavenging ethnography, um, which is what you got to do when you're studying people who you can't really go with them into the, you know, their everyday lives and their workplace, whether that's because they're nuclear scientists or just because, you know, they work at some music streaming service that doesn't want people to know how the sausage is made. Um, well, now can, can you, so can you sort of contextualize for us, um, you know, the, the text, the, it, this, 
the it's right there in the text right or in the title that this question of algorithms and as you said uh, your sort of body of work so far has tried to question the uh, you know have tried to give a definition to algorithms have tried to understand the sort of social aspects of algorithms so can you tell us a little bit about how you see your book as contributing to this conversation that's happening both among you know uh, sets of scholars but in some degree even among um uh, you know the mainstream uh, and the media. That this this conversation that is happening about what algorithms are, um, uh, you know, and and how they work, and sort of the the role that they might be having in um, how they the role that they play in terms of governing something like our tastes in music or our selections in, in music. Sure. So yeah, the, this question of like what is an algorithm is sort of the thing that I uh, really started you know, trying to make a name for myself in, in, in academia. That was like the thing that I was working on all the time. Um, and the short version, we'll see if I can do a short version, uh, is this, right? So we have a discourse about algorithms, um, which is that algorithms are these kinds of inhuman forces that, you know, impact society, they impact taste, you know, uh, the algorithm does stuff to us. Uh, and maybe one of the reasons why people imagine that algorithms are so bad at doing things like, you know, recommending music or getting involved in people's taste um, is, is this fact that they're inhuman, right? That what chance does an algorithm have of understanding taste? Uh, it's not a person. It doesn't know what taste is like. Um, and I think that that kind of argument, you know, it's useful in some domains. I think it relies a lot on uh, a sort of taken for granted assumption about what defines the human and about how we might separate humans and algorithms from each other. But more importantly, it does this weird work of dehumanizing the algorithm, right? So when we talk about the algorithm, we're not usually talking about something like a sorting algorithm, right? The kind of thing you would implement in a fairly simple bit of software that could, you know, basically take a, a shuffled deck of cards and put all the cards in order. We're talking about big machine learning systems that are continuously iterated over time. Um, they have lots of parts. They are in many versions. They are being tested and tweaked and changed constantly. Uh, that's the kind of algorithm I'm talking about when I talk about algorithms. Sometimes I will call that an algorithmic system instead of an algorithm because the argument I want to make is that it doesn't really matter what the algorithm in a very narrow sense is. The thing that has effects, the thing that actually does anything, the thing that we call the algorithm when we do it it's sort of you know out in public, um, that thing is a sociotechnical system, right? That is a system full of people and institutions and data sources and computers, and yes, some like conventional algorithms as well. Uh, and if you want to understand how that thing works, you have to understand that it is more than just the algorithm. Uh, so my take, and this is an anthropologically biased one, but that's where I'm coming from. So other people can be biased in their own directions. Uh, my take is that the human element in these systems is really important, right? So an example I like to give, which I think I put in print at some point, is that it's fairly common knowledge that Mark Zuckerberg is the majority shareholder of Facebook and therefore has basically ultimate control over how Facebook works. If Mark Zuckerberg decided tomorrow that the best way to organize the Facebook newsfeed was alphabetical by name or first letter of the post or something, he could do that. That's that's like possible. That would be an algorithm. That would be an algorithm for organizing um, posts. Why 
wouldn't that happen, right? Like what would stop that from happening if, if Mark Zuckerberg decided it was important? Well, it would be nothing about algorithms per se, right? But what it would be is the sort of social order of the company, right? People would be like, no, that's a bad idea because the reason we use the algorithm is this. Oh no, alphabetical order doesn't make any sense because we want this to happen and so on and so forth. All of those reasons are the reasons that are propping up the current system as it exists, right? Those are reasons that are why the algorithm works as it does. The algorithm does not work the way it does because it's an algorithm. The algorithm works the way it does because people are keeping it working that way. So if you want to understand why the systems come to work the way they do, and I think importantly, how they might work in the future, right? How they might change over time. I think it's a lot more useful to look at that, to look at how these people understand what they're doing because they're doing things, you know, like testing out a new feature, realizing that it does something weird and changing it. And that change is not an, it's not an algorithmic change, right? It's a change in the algorithm, but it's a change by, by people. So the, the argument that I make that is, you know, if you want to understand how an algorithm works, these details, I think of them as cultural details, right? This are like how these people understand the way the world works and what's important. Um, those are as important as technical details, right? Those are part of what govern how these systems work. Uh, and we often assume when we make critical statements about these systems, that those details, that the cultural understanding of the people behind the systems is really obvious. Like we know for sure what it must be because we live under capitalism, because we have a certain critique of streaming music or whatever. We assume that we know. And I don't think it's that obvious. I think that there's a loose coupling between the ideas that people have and the systems that they build. And you cannot 100% figure out what they think just by looking at the systems, especially if you're primarily interested in saying, see, look, they treat music algorithmically. And I know that they are algorithmic kinds of people too. That's just because you're looking through an algorithm-shaped filter, right, at actual people who are on the other side. So one of the things I try to do in the book is to try to do justice to people who are, I think, for the most part, trying to do a good job, are motivated by uh, a love of music that's just as genuine as anyone else's love of music, um, and are really trying to make sense of what's going on in the world. It doesn't mean that they can't make mistakes. It doesn't mean that they can't, you know do bad things in the world, but it does mean that we can't really just treat them as being kind of, you know, uh, uh, idiots, uh, in relation to cultural stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I also find it interesting, you know, in, in, in many of the chapters where you're talking, where you talk about this iterative relationship between people and the algorithms, right. And how they don't just produce an algorithm and then put it out into the world and let it do its thing that they're constantly sort of managing it and maintaining it and changing it and fixing it. Um, that they're, you know, particularly when it came to the way that you would describe um, these people, not just as workers, but as people who care about music, that to them, you know, I definitely got the sense that to them, these algorithms aren't just about processing data um, and keeping people engaged, but even as a tool for enhancing people's um, taste, right? And enhancing their interactions with music to enable them to discover music. So did you ever get a sense that the people who were making these algorithms were sort of approaching them, not just from a technical, but from the um, a bit more of a utilitarian, you know, the idea that they could um, be enacting positive change in the world, and at least in people's lives. 
For sure. I think that the if you ask people sort of, you know, why do you make music recommender systems? Like what's the good, what, what good are these? Um, the most common thing that people would say, and again, maybe I'm a little bit out of date here because, you know, it takes time for the for ethnography to happen, but I think it's still true, um, is that, you know, the point of these systems is to help people discover new music. Now, that's not the only thing that recommender systems do, right? A lot of recommender systems are designed to sort of like help you just like find something to listen to. And maybe the right thing for you right now is like, music you already know but music discovery is the thing that people will talk about a lot as being a kind of unalloyed good and i think that's really interesting because it's true i think a lot of people would agree with them that that's like an objectively good thing but that's a particular normative position right that that discovering new music is 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 a good thing so there's a chapter in the book where i talk a little bit a little bit about some of the uh the sort of uh colonial echoes uh of music discovery um drawing on work by people like the cultural studies scholar Amanda Modell, um, where we talk about, you know, okay, well, what is music discovery? Like who is discovering what and where and and what and what is shaping this form of discovery? So uh, I want to be clear that, you know, when I'm suggesting that people are motivated by like a, a love for music and an interest in helping other people, that is in no way, you know, a, a, a get out of jail free card as far as, you know, potentially doing harm is concerned. Uh, so I, so I try to, 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 walk that fine line in the book between, you know, acknowledging how people are motivated, what they think of as being important. And, you know, to kind of take that seriously, uh, while also, you know, sometimes giving them a hard time uh, about what the consequences of this might be, or about how, you know, despite the fact that they're building these systems that are kind of designed to be open, right, to help people find new things, to break out of boxes, that's that kind of language they like a lot. There are always these kinds of constraints that are in play, right? There's always limits. Uh, there's always a sort of perspective uh, that's being implemented in these systems. Um, and it's pretty clear, right, by the way that uh, a system, like, you know, if you look at Spotify, for instance, uh, if you look around at what is available for discovery, there is an assumption about what kind of person is doing the discovering, right? There is an assumption about who is discovering and therefore which kinds of music are the kinds of music that are in need of being presented to someone else. But maybe the people who make that music want to be presented to audiences that they haven't been presented to before, right? There's not, a, there's, it's not, a, there's no easy answers here, um, which I think makes this a really useful domain for examining some of these questions because if you look at other domains, uh, such as, you know, the spread of facial recognition algorithms in public or, uh, you know, uh, algorithmic drone targeting or something like that, there's a very different kind of argument you can make for, you shouldn't do this. Nobody benefits from this. This is a bad system. This is a normatively undesirable thing. It's much harder to make that case, I think, around something like music recommendation, at least in the abstract. Mm-hmm. Great. So tell us, you know, we've talked a little bit about now the the algorithm, the motivation. Can you sort of lay out um, your basic claim around taste and the relationship between the, you know, the makers and the algorithms and taste? Okay. So this is something that only really came clear to me as I was working on the book, actually, sort of revising from the dissertation itself. I was really hung up on the question of what is going on with taste. Uh, some of my longest writer's block on the dissertation was done when I was on a attempted writing retreat trying to write this section of the book so i'm a little scarred but the um i figured out sort of where i ended up with it which is that okay when i started on this project i was interested in that relationship between taste and techniques or taste and technology and i had this idea that you know 
taste they would be related to each other right so one way they might be related is that if you were the, if you were a person and you thought okay why do people like the music that they like um and you thought it's because of how it sounds then you might build a system that tried to use the sort of sound of music maybe audio data or something uh and use that to make recommendations uh if you thought that people liked music that they liked because of who their what their friends listen to you might try to do something with like a social network right that would make sense and you could also then imagine of course the reverse which is that you know maybe i'm the kind of guy who's got a bunch of access to social media data so it's going to be convenient to me to imagine that taste is shaped by who what your friends like and we're going to do it that way right so i was hoping to find something like that um what did i find well i asked everyone that i interviewed i said you know why do people like the music they like and they all looked at me and they were just like uh i don't i don't know so i talk about this a little bit in the prologue to the book but uh they would always say i have no idea and i thought that was a really weird thing to say from people who are building systems that are supposedly modeling this right like that was what i thought was going on um and so there wasn't an easy story about the relationship between theories of taste and technical architectures. What there was, was instead this weird openness, right? This idea that like, I want to build a system that whatever taste is, however it works, I just want to detect it. I want to like figure out what it is and be able to recommend music to people that will help them. Right. So, so you, what that leads to is a real omnivorousness about data sources. So you see that you see people trying to build prototype systems that will take in all sorts of data, right? Like the GPS location of your phone, what type of time of day it is. A lot of phones now have like accelerometers that know like how much you're bouncing around. Right. So like, are you riding a bicycle? Are you going for a walk? Like all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and they will try it because why not? right? We could try anything. Um, and it's not because they have a specific theory of taste. That's like people who are walking like this, right? But it's this, uh, it's something else. It's this idea of like, we're going to be ready for it. Whatever taste is, we're just going to be open to the possibility. Um, now on, so that's their theory of taste, there, which is to say there's not a huge theory of taste. Uh, there's a lot of theories of taste that are sort of weakly held. They get blended together in different ways, in different, in different projects. And there's not like, there's not one thing there. On my end, as a social scientist, we have our theories of taste that we are kind of partial to, right? The big one uh, is obviously Pierre Bourdieu's 1984 distinction. 1984? I think it's 84, which is the one uh, in English, uh, which is uh, you know the one that people usually shorthand as uh, what's called the homology thesis, right? So fancy people like fancy things, less fancy people like not fancy things. If you like opera, it's not because you have good taste, it's just because of your social position. Um, bunch of things to say about that. One is that it's not really Bourdieu's argument. That's uh, Veblen makes that argument 100 years earlier. It's not Bourdieu's point uh, primarily. Um, but two uh, is that what, what we want really, I think, out of a theory of taste as social scientists is a kind of uh, pragmatic theory of taste, a theory about like what it's like to have taste and what it's like to develop taste, right? That kind of homology theory doesn't tell you about how people acquire their taste. It just tells you about a sort of matching between forms of taste. And so this is work by people like Tia Denora, um, Antoine Henian, uh, Claudio Benzacri, um, sociologists all, right? So anthropologists don't have a lot to say about taste for reasons that we probably shouldn't get into on the podcast, but I have theories about. Um, and yeah, they're interested in like, what is it like to become, to acquire taste, right? To, to, to learn about something and to start to like it. And I think that's really important because if you want to think about the effects that a system like a music recommender could have on the world, one of those effects uh, 
could be that it might make people start to like music in a different way than they did before, right? They might start to have a different pattern of liking, um, which could be informed actually by the theory, right? So I could build a music recommender system with a very bad theory of taste, sociologically speaking, right? One that's like inaccurate. But if I use it and I present music to people according to it, they might start to like music in a way that corresponds to my bad pattern. And that's a really interesting problem because you might imagine that, you know, helping these people out by giving them a better sociological theory of taste would make the system work better. But I don't think that's true. I think that these systems are performative uh, to a certain extent, right? They can kind of make their theories become true uh, just by showing people things. Uh, so the takeaway that I ended up having, sorry, this is a very roundabout way to answer your question, but um, is that I am keen on this kind of pragmatic theory of taste where we think of taste as being a kind of activity that people undertake um, in a technically instrumented world. So it's not something that you have in you necessarily, but it's something you acquire. It's something you can acquire semi-intentionally. And it's something you acquire in a world full of technologies, right? And so if music recommenders enter the scene, of course, they're going to change what it means to have taste. And I think we are sort of seeing that now. This is not exactly what I study directly, but like, you know, I think people can start to have things like taste in platforms based on what algorithm you know they use or taste in uh, uh, genres that have didn't exist before being algorithmically recognized right there's all sorts of ways that these algorithms sort of feed into the shape of taste and that isn't to say that that's not necessarily bad but it is a, a sort of vector of power right so it is a way that some of these systems can change the world they can change the things that they're ostensibly um, you know measuring and and, and working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will admit when I when I read that aspect of you know the the part of the book where you sort of say and this is the the sort of proposition around taste that I'm putting forward, um, and that openness to it, I was a bit like oh well that's sort of the indeterminacy of that statement was sort of just like, um, you know was sort of just like oh I, I was expecting more oomph, but then as I read on, I was like I was like yes this makes perfect sense that you would have you know th- that they would be building these systems between like you say this this sort of this tension between the open or the closeness of the system right the formal rationalization of the system and then the openness of something like taste um, you know which goes back to like you said earlier this questioning of the distinction between the human and, and the technological and you know to see that, these technologies are are to, to sort of interpret the the impact of these technologies on taste in a sort of negative or 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 um, you know cautionary way is to also try and understand taste as fundamentally human, and therefore the role is only to mediate the human the humanness of taste, right? As if there's some version of taste that can exist outside of our relationship with technology. Yeah, I will say like the, the the argument that I make often, and I can't even remember if I made it into the book, but it's something that I talk about a lot, um, is that our understanding of what taste is sort of, quote unquote, before recommender systems is extremely technologically mediated, right? So the idea that like, oh yeah, you have a favorite artist. What does that mean? Oh, that's the person who's like, I buy their albums at the record store, right? Or like I choose their thing. There's this assumption that like taste is the kind of exercise of choice across a field of choices that are technically indistinguishable, right? Like I don't go buy the, the, the LP of this artist instead of that artist, because it was going to like help me feed my family better. Right. It's they're indistinguishable 
except for their symbolic content. This is why Bourdieu makes the claim at some point that tech, that music is like the perfect medium for expressing distinction because it has nothing going on other than other than symbolic distinction. I don't know if I agree with that necessarily. I know some people don't, um, but it's there's something to it, right? So if you thought experiment throw yourself back in time before the advent of recorded music and think about what would it mean to have taste in music then, right? It's different. It's a different thing. Um, and again, it's not better or worse necessarily. I'm being a horrible, horrible moral relativist here, but it's different. And it, and it, 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 it's, it's changed. And I think as a sort of empiricist in my, you know, in my anthropological empiricism hat, part of what I want to do is just document what's going on, right. And say like, well, this is a change. Um, it's hard to say whether this is better or worse. I think it's, it's some things seem to be better for some definitions of better, but, um, I would say the one thing that's clearly less good or something that I'm not particularly enthusiastic about is the centralization of it. I think that having the sort of like collapse of many of these services into sort of one or two of them is not going to be great, um, for, you know, variety and for the ability of people to sort of develop alternatives. But in general, you know, I'm not, I'm not a doomer when it comes to algorithmic recommendation, which is interesting uh, to be, to be at this point in the sort of history of the social critique of algorithms. To not be a doomer. Yeah. Right. Like when I started this project, uh, you know, over 10 years ago, nobody talked about algorithms at all. There was an ad, I, I had this in the book at some point, there was an ad campaign for the search engine, ask Jeeves. Um, which it was just like 2008 or nine and they had these big billboards and they were, they were all uh, they were trying to promote the term algorithm. And they had these weird, it was said like Jeeves killed the algorithm, like all of this kind of stuff. Um, and there were, I found some news coverage of it at the time from advertising trade press. And they were like, this is a weird word. Like they're, they're using this weird word to advertise what they're doing. And now of course it's totally different. Right. Um, but certainly over the course of the, of the, you know, the field work and the writing, the sort of popular image of algorithms has changed dramatically uh, uh, for the worst, right? Like nowadays, if I talk to a reporter, they'll say like, well, we all know that algorithms are bad, right? We all know that they like do this bad thing. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, they would be like, what? <laughs> like, what if, like, I don't even know what that is. So that was, uh, yeah. So that's been interesting to see how that sort of, you know, public perception has changed. And I've sort of been there all along and been at various points, I seem too critical and sometimes too nice. And, you know, it is what it is. I think we need a lot of books about these systems from a lot of different points of view and with a lot of different goals. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. It is what it is. And, um, you know, I think too about the the popular consciousness around the singularity of the algorithm right the algorithm as if it's you know the leviathan or something that's just this sort of ultimate power of control that you know people oh the algorithm is causing me to not get the likes that i want or the algorithm is creating a glitch and you know it, it, it sort of just becomes this catch-all singularity and it's one thing i appreciated about the book is the way that you not only humanize the algorithm but you show it in many corners Right. Sort of, you know, if we could sort of use that spatialization, you know, you show it in all these different corners. Um, so let's get into some ideas uh, from the chapters. Um, you know, I was so I was so taken. I mean, the, the chapters all make these really interesting arguments where you weave together, um, you know, each chapter sort of focuses on, a on an aspect of the technical making. But then you sort of bring it into conversation with various, um, you know, sets of theories or ideas from anthropology, you know, going back to 
you know, even uh, the, the discussions you engage, you engage in using anthropological theories around trapping, right? Uh, not a body of anthropology that you often come across uh, these days. Um, uh, and so, for example, in the, you know, like I said earlier, the chapter that I used with my students w- was the way that you tie myth to this um this idea of information overload that is sort of that you sent you make central or, or you um, discuss in the context of the history of these systems and so I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about um, you know a little bit about this idea and how you just say that it's a way of seeing the world sure so yeah I think I think a lot of people who write books end up at this stage where they make like a big weird spreadsheet to try to organize like what's going to go in each chapter and the one that I made at some point had a line for um sort of anthropology theory thing like as you know each chapter can sort of hold like one chunk of anthropology theory and like a technological detail thing and like each chapter can kind of hold like one deep dive into some technical details so i don't remember if i really held up to that in the end but if you go through you can see the traces of this uh and so yeah that 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 first body chapter of the book um which is about uh it's called too much music and is about uh, information overload um is a kind of reaction to a response you would get if you asked someone who built a recommender system what it's for. So I already said a different thing. I already said that they would say it's for music discovery. Um, that's the sort of second thing you'd say if you want to say that it's good. What people will say now, it's related to discovery, is, um, well, why do you need a music recommender? Because there's too much music, right? It responds to this problem of information overload. And that's true for all sorts of recommender systems. Um, And it's been true of a lot of computing technology and other kinds of technology uh, for a long time. Uh, And so this chapter tries to sort of pick at that idea, right? This it's clearly super central. Like it comes up always. Uh, if you ask people, you know, why, <laughs> like, what is this for? Why do I need this? Um, they'd say it's, there's too much stuff otherwise. So to go back to my Mark Zuckerberg example, right? Why do we need an algorithm for Facebook at all? They explicitly say on their website, we use the algorithm because without it, there would just be way too many things for you to see. It would just be overwhelming. Um, and so this is the reason sort of for why. So what's going on? Um, I had this moment where I uh, uh, was listening to one of the people that I talked about in the book and talked to in the book, uh, explain the problem. And he gives this great talk where he talks about how, you know, imagine that you finally get on Spotify, but he worked at Spotify uh, for, you know, after not having streaming music, you've got access to like 30 million songs or 40 million songs now. And uh, what are you going to do? And he says, okay, you're going to listen to that same Dave Matthews band album that you had on CD, but you never unpacked after your last move. And then like an hour later, you're done. And what are you going to listen to next? And like we mentioned earlier, I have a lot in common with the people who build these systems. And I thought, yeah, I don't know. What are you going to listen to next? Like, that feels like a real problem. And then I realized, you know, it's not, who is that a problem for? Is that a real problem? Like, why is it a problem to listen to that Dave Matthews Band album? Or like, why is it a problem to not know what's coming next? Uh, And so I started to pick at this idea of information overload, which I think a lot of people take for granted as kind of just like the way things are now and kind of the consequence of there being too much information. And I tried to think of it as a myth, right? So in this anthropological sense where a myth is not something that is false, um, although it can be something that's false, 
but is rather a kind of story about the nature of the world, right? So when we talk about information overload, the idea that I had uh, went, maybe we're not making a factual claim about the state of things, although it feels like we're making a factual claim sometimes. Maybe we're making a claim about like the nature of things. We're making a claim about just like what it is to be a person uh, in the world. So it turns out if you look at the sort of history of information overload literature, which exists, uh, it goes way back in time, right? You find people citing stuff all the way back to sort of antiquity. Um, there's a big burst of it in the early modern period around, you know, sort of the emergence of the printing press, where you've got, you know, scholars uh, in the 1600s being like, too many books. Oh my God, what are we going to do with all these books? Uh, it's always funny because it feels really quaint now. Like at every moment we're like, well, oh, that's cute. You thought there was a lot of information. Now. Or you see like the president of the Association for Computing Machinery writing uh, editorial in the early 80s where he says, we have way too much email. Like we get so much email. What are we going to do about all this email? Everyone's like, you have no, I you have no idea uh, what it's going to be like. But there's something interesting here, right? This idea that like this, this recurrence of the idea that we're always overloaded um, seemed to me to be evidence of something else, which is that we have this way of talking wherein humans are sort of fundamentally constrained and up against a world that is full of stuff. And that's anxiety inducing for some people. Um, but you can't have too much information without a reference point on the other side that it's too much for, right? So to, it's not good enough to have a lot of data or like a big library. You need to have like a library user who is like going to be overwhelmed. And that person is not necessarily going to feel overwhelmed, right? You could totally walk into a library and be like, okay, that's just a library, right? I'm not, I'm not anxious about it. It's just there. So, right. It's like, why would we feel like a big music catalog, for instance, is a kind of threat to us rather than being like a resource. And I suggest in here that that maybe, you know, there's some efforts to try to make people feel that way, certainly on the part of, of some of these companies. There's people like uh, the musicologist Eric Drott has a great article about how streaming music companies try to encourage that feeling of of like lack in people who ostensibly have everything, right? Like, what do you, more do you want? You have 40 million songs, right? But we know if we're like good Lacanians or whatever, we need to desire is because of lack and we need to make you feel like you're missing something. What are you missing? Maybe you're missing knowledge about what's coming next, right? Like maybe you're missing that. And that's a consequence of the huge, the huge library. Uh, in any case, sorry <laughs> to go back to it. The idea here is that uh, uh, the myth of information overload is a story about being an informatic person in an informatic universe. If you think about everything as being information, then basically existing in a world with horizons beyond your own is a kind of, you know, intrinsic overload. This is what's going to happen. It's not a historical event. It's not a thing that happens in a particular moment in time. It's just the nature of existence. And so recommender systems, surprise, get revealed as being a kind of like tool to help people mediate that overload, which can never truly be mediated because it is just the way things are. So I went about this a little bit backwards, but there's a bunch of interesting details in here, including a story uh, from one of the people who really developed the first uh, modern recommender systems, where he tries to talk about how um, uh, uh, cave people trying to figure out what food to eat outside of their cave and learning from each other about like which ones are good, that that might be a recommender system too. So I always just think these are interesting moments when when people make these kind of paleolithic, just so stories. Um, you know, we got to look at those because those are ideologically loaded. Yeah. Yeah. But like you say too, it, it's, you know, in the next chapter, you, um, 
develop um, an argument around and a history that looks at the shift of the ideologies behind these recommender systems, right? From the collaborative filtering of the 90s to the captology, right? The 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 ways that they're trying to develop them to sort of captivate uh, uh, people. And, uh, you know, my understanding of that relationship is in some ways the, the myth of information overload uh, you know, buttresses the um, the idea that uh, they need to be the ones to sort of feed people and recommend people songs as a means of keeping them engaged with the platform. Right. Yes. I- yeah. For sure. So so yeah. So going into the next. So basically going into the next chapter of of the book, um, which is sort of derived from an article that I published a while ago called "Captivating Algorithms: uh, Recommender Systems as Traps." Um, yeah. So what I, what I talk about there is this kind of transition where, so the early days of recommender systems that I should say, this is like the mid 1990s is surrounded by like information overload discourse, right? Like basically every publication is like, Ooh, there's so much stuff right now. And it's so fun to read because it feels so quaint from, from right now. But uh, yeah, so, so a lot of it is sort of predicated then on the idea that the user of a music recommender system is going to be a real music enthusiast. So someone who wants to find a lot of music uh, and they've found it and now they have a problem, right? You want to consume all that music. Um, consume is such a horrible word, but you know what I mean? This idea of like, I want to listen to all of it. Uh, and what happens over time is this shift in the sort of modal imagined user of a recommender system from the enthusiast to the indifferent listener. So this is the first sort of three body chapters of the book are kind of a sequence about this. Um, But eventually you end up at the model we see today, which is that like recommender systems are designed not primarily to help someone who's like really into music discover new stuff, um, but rather to just provide something to listen to, to someone who like maybe doesn't care about music all that much. And like, maybe if you're lucky, it will inspire them to look into something new they hadn't heard before, but that is not the primary goal. Uh, That transition of sort of imagined user happens alongside a bunch of other transitions uh, in recommender systems. So the big one that I describe in this chapter is in how systems are evaluated, right? So how do you know if a recommender system works? It's hard. There is no objective measure to know if a recommender system works. The earliest, let's not say the earliest, but like the sort of dominant one, the sort of one that first rose to dominance uh, is one called root mean square error. And I will not get into it now. If you want to know the details of it, you can find, as Matthew knows, you can find an excruciatingly detailed explanation uh, in chapter two of my book. Um, But this was my technical detail for that chapter. But it's basically a number that says, okay, here is a spreadsheet where the rows are listeners and the columns are artists uh, at the at every in every cell of the spreadsheet let's put a number that's the rating that that artist would give or that mu- that listener would give that artist or that song or whatever it is you're rating it could be to be anything recipes jokes hotels um, and the idea is that the recommender system problem so to speak is that that spreadsheet is mostly empty because most listeners haven't rated most things and most things haven't been rated by most listeners so the the trick is guessing what's going to show up in the empty fields and so there's a bunch of techniques people develop to do that um and the way you would evaluate it is you would compare one spreadsheet your guesses to the other spreadsheet like what actually happened when people did it and you can get one number out of that root mean square error or rmse uh, and if you make that number smaller you have done a better job of predicting people's taste 
or have you, right? Like, does it matter whether, you know, say I, I, you think I'm going to like, uh, uh, the new Britney Spears album, four stars, but I actually like it five stars, right? Does that matter? Is that like, is, is that like important or not? Uh, maybe it's not. Uh, and so there was this kind of assumption that that's what people wanted and that that was, this was the way to do things and that that would correspond to like user satisfaction. But as this field started to like test that assumption, they found that it was not necessarily so. And that like other changes could change satisfaction more. I, there's always this story about no one could find the paper, but everybody knew that it had happened, which was a funny thing to exist, but it's a very ethnographic moment um, where a study had found that writing recommended for you over the recommendation results improved satisfaction more than like fixing the RMSE, right? Fixing your technical accuracy measure. And that's a weird thing to discover if you're kind of like an algorithm guy and what you really like is like optimizing this like one problem. The idea that like fixing the interface to be like more friendly could do a better job than enhancing your algorithm. That's like not something that you're really ready to, to change. In any case, what changes over this time is that the data stop being explicit rec uh, uh, ratings. So it stops being like thumbs up, thumbs down and starts being like, how long did you listen to this? How many times did you listen to this? How much of this movie did you watch? These implicit signals that we usually think of nowadays as being the bread and butter of, of recommender systems. Um, that data starts to become more available because there's streaming, right? So at in these early days, there's not streaming, right? Most of the time, these recommender systems exist. Starting in the mid-90s, people are listening to music on CDs and they're watching videos on DVDs, right? They're not they're not streaming it, um, but streaming makes a lot of this data available. So now you can know something like, oh, when people listen to this song, they skip out after the first 30 seconds or something like that. And you could use that data. You could know things like, did they change the volume, right? Like, oh, they pumped it up, right? Like that might that might be a signal you could use. Uh, and so all of that gets used uh, to kind of persuade, figure out how to persuade people to keep using, right? So the, the winning metric stops being did we predict their ratings accurately, which had a lot of problems um, and becomes, did the change that we made to the system encourage people to stick around more? And that's a more like experimental approach to the design of recommender systems, right? You're sort of putting out something and seeing if it works. Uh, and it is based on all these tacit interactions. And for reasons that I don't even know if I can get into here, uh, it looks a lot like a set of anthropological theories about the design of animal traps that dates back to 1900. Um, I will say I actually taught that reading today in uh, my seminar this morning. Uh, so I very recently revisited Otis Mason's 1900 article in American Anthropologist <laughs> Traps of the Amarins is study in psychology and invention. Um, I don't know if we should get into it or not, but uh, if you want to know more about it, check out the book. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's uh, – or, or the article, right? Like it's um... – it's such a fascinating. I mean, it, it's both a fascinating discussion of the pairing of um, you know animal trapping to recommender systems, but even just um, an insight into how these kinds of technologies work. Because uh, you know, obviously, as a user, we'll engage with both. You know, the interface asks us for both ratings, um, but then you know, so you know from a user perspective this can give a lot of insight in turn in how um the people who make recommender systems are sort of modeling the user right and trying to think about how to persuade the user to continue to engage with the technology now is this is this 
related to a business model or sort of more like a, an ethic for how to be, you know, how to be a technology or, or a tool for people? Both. So one of the things that's interesting about this transition um, is that it sort of meets a bunch of demands at the same time, right? So uh, in the chapter about trapping, I talk about this, that on this move to sort of, you know, satisfaction, which is measured as sort of duration or as like mostly as duration in what I call captivation metrics. So these are things like monthly active users or dwell time, which is a very wonderful name for this. Um, They do a bunch of things. So they appeal to satisfaction, which is a kind of measure that has a moral superiority in the tech industry. If you can say things you're doing, you're doing something on behalf of the users, uh, that's always sort of been winning. There's a, there's a great article, an early article about search engines. Um, Oh, and the name of the author is escaping me at the moment. Um, But there's a great uh, article on search engines that I, that I cite, it's going to pop into my head in a minute. Um, in there that says, you know, appeals to user satisfaction are a very big way that people justify what they're doing, uh, design decisions in the tech space. So if you can say like, look, this is satisfaction, that's one thing. The other is that like the that root mean square error, like accuracy paradigm was really faltering. Like people could not get that thing to work any better than it already was. And so this was kind of solving a technical problem by saying, you know what, we're going to look at that. It's not like moving the goalposts, but saying we're going to look at those other goalposts instead. Right? Like we're going to do this other thing. Um, and maybe that makes more logical sense uh, for them. And that data is really available, right? So like a very, it's very easy to have data like monthly active users and dwell time and so on, because that's sort of like the basic shape of the data you collect when you're collecting log data, right? Like, you know, when people are interacting with the system, because an interaction is the thing that you're collecting. Uh, and then the last thing is that, yes, business pressures, right? That becomes a way that these companies are valued. So, so, so startup, um, sort of startup economy like venture capitalists really, really, really strongly value the acquisition of users such that companies like Spotify, for instance, can not post a profit for many years, um, but be highly valued because what makes them valuable is their ability to sort of retain users. So retaining users is solves like a business problem. It solves like an epistemological problem around like the nature of what we're trying to measure. Uh, it solves this sort of like faltering paradigm problem. It does a lot of things. Uh, and, and it also sort of makes use of a kind of data that is now available, right? You couldn't really do a lot of this stuff if it were the mid nineties and you just didn't have data about, you know, when uh, Netflix, for instance, um, ran a prize very famously, a contest uh, in sort of 2007, 2008, um, for people to improve their algorithm. When they started that contest, they were a DVD rental by mail company. And at the end of that contest, they had become a streaming video service. And you really can't use the kind of like, you know, dwell time metrics on DVD watching because they don't know. They don't know that you left that DVD on top of your DVD player until it was time to mail it back. Right. But now, they know that you let you started that movie and you quit and you watch something else. Mm-hmm. Um, now I, I'm jumping ahead uh, in the book quite a little bit um, because I want to get to another, uh, you know, later on in the book, you bring in um, metaphors of pastoralism, right. To talk about how the designers of recommender systems sort of understand their role in tweaking these systems and managing them. Um, and, but in order to get there, I, j- I just I want 
uh, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about um, how the designers use a spatialization metaphor in order to understand um, the cat, the sort of the ways they measure and categorize genre. Uh, and then to be able to ask how that spatialization metaphor sort of uh, segues into this pastoralism, um, you know, a, a way that people understand their role in maintaining these systems. Okay, so I'm going to try to be less verbose about this. But the basic idea is that people working on music recommendation today talk about the music space. Uh, as the thing that they're working on. And they don't mean like I work in the music space, like I work in the pharmaceutical space or something like that, right? What they mean uh, is that the model of musical variation they're usually working with um, is a spatial model. This is not unique to music. This is common across a lot of forms of machine learning. But basically, you know, what you're doing when you're building one of these systems is you're building some way to distribute music in a space, like a multi-dimensional space, um, such that things that are similar are near to each other uh, and things that you like are close to you. So in these models, right, you uh, will be represented, you know, as a data point somewhere and you'll have some proximity to a bunch of things. And that's generally speaking, the stuff you like. And if there's things that are near you that you haven't listened to before, that would be the kind of stuff that we might recommend to you. Or we might, you know, if we're, if we're the system, we might look a little bit beyond that to sort of your sort of literal horizons in this space, right? Like what's next? What's just outside of what you listen to now? Very, very, very common spatial metaphor in recommender systems uh, and in machine learning more more generally. Uh, So there's a chapter uh, in in the book that's about these spatial metaphors because they get applied to genre in particular in ways that try to understand what genre is, is a kind of like a regional form of musical variation. And and it turns out that regional there means, means both literal geographical regions and also conceptual ones. Because if you navigate these visualizations people make of the music space, you'll find that some of the genres are just, you know, names of local musical traditions from specific regions. Uh, But sometimes you'll find things like, you know, here's hip hop. Oh, look, hip hop is near to Vietnamese hip hop and it's near to Argentinian hip hop and it's near to like any sort of hip hop you can imagine. Um, You know, these similarity spaces are weird. Um, in a bunch of ways. Like they're weird because uh, they're, they seem very natural. They seem like very obvious ways to organize music. And I should say they feel obvious to me. They feel natural to me. And one of the things that's hard or that I've tried to do in, in the book is to sort of denaturalize them and say, I don't know, like, why? Why do we think of this as being spatial? When it's really, it seems so obvious to me, to them, to most people I talk to, that like, of course it's spatial. But I just want to call it out as something that exists, right? That we maybe, what. I don't know. Like, are there other ways we could, what are we, what are we smuggling in by thinking of this as being, as being spatial? Um, But the other thing is that these spaces are actually super weird, right? So I've been talking about them like a three-dimensional space and people usually describe them like three-dimensional spaces, but in machine learning, they're not, they are like 40 dimensional spaces or a thousand dimensional spaces, million dimensional spaces. And your spatial intuition sort of fall apart when you get up to that number of dimensions. So like, I, I can't explain all the details of this, I think, effectively here, but there's a thing called the curse of dimensionality uh, in machine learning, which is basically what, with enough dimensions, everything is next to everything else uh, in one way or another. Uh, and so you have these funny collapses that happen where all of a sudden everything is similar because it's similar to something in some way and, similar, and that's similar to another thing in another way. And it's very hard, actually, to sort of get out of this, uh, to get out of this problem. And so there's this discourse uh, in machine learning, which I describe in the book as being kind of 
two parts. Like on the one hand, it relies on the intuitiveness of space, what I was just describing. Like, yeah, sure, of course, the music space, that makes sense. Like similar music's over here and different music is over there. But on the other hand, it relies on this idea that the music space is weird. Like beyond human comprehension, bizarre geometrical stuff is happening and you shouldn't rely on your intuition. You've got to use math. And so I talk about sort of what that does for uh, machine learning in general and for sort of the spatialization of music in particular to say, you know, on the one hand, this is a very intuitive thing to do, but on the other hand, it's the kind of thing that can only truly be understood through the medium of computation and sort of through numbers. And then there's a whole side thing in there about how actually, if going back to Pierre Bourdieu's book, Distinction, if anyone is familiar with the figures in that book, you might recognize what I've been describing, points of people in a space of cultural things. The method that Bourdieu uses there, correspondence analysis, is in many ways an ancestor of some of these techniques that are used today in machine learning. So you find the social sciences and uh, the computer science is sort of like mushing together at points where I think a lot of sort of critics on the social scientific side imagine that we're more different than we are actually right so we we're not we're not strangers to this kind of stuff in the social sciences i don't want to pretend like i've come in from the epistemologically pure disciplines to point out how messed up everyone else's thinking is yeah um yeah, no, just to drive, you know, as we're sort of drawing near a close, just to sort of take that understanding of the spatialization of the, you know, of these music recommender systems um, and how those extend to the ways that the make, you know, to, to sort of get back to the humanization of the people who, uh, or the humanization of the recommender systems. And, uh, you know, in the last chapter, you talk about um, uh uh, the makers of recommender systems as path makers, right? And, and and people who sort of forge these paths of of music and taste and to some degree cultural capital, right? The kinds of capital that come with being the taste makers and the gatekeepers to to good to good music. Um, and so, you know, I'm just hoping that you could bring back in that element of the human with the algorithmic through the ways that they use these uh, these metaphors. You, you drew that connection out even better, I think, than I did in the book, which is that the, the last body chapter of the book is called Parks and Recommendation and is presented in the book as being kind of a follow-on to the space chapter, right? This idea that, okay, well, there's space, ideas of what a space is inform this. And one very common idea about what the, the music space is like uh, that you'll hear from a lot of people in, in, in this space, sorry, uh, is that it's kind of like a garden or a park or a farm is this kind of like semi-wild semi-natural thing that needs to be tended to um and so I, there's a bit in that chapter where i talk about someone um describing his job as the sort of head of, of of content programming for for a music streaming service as being like a park ranger right so his job is to sort of maintain paths and that's really much that that's really that spatial imaginary that i was describing earlier right this idea that like we want to help people explore the music space and maybe that's discovery. Maybe that's going on the paths that they liked already. But whatever it is, it's a space. <laughs> and our job is to help them explore it. Um, it's a very common metaphor uh, that people use. And uh, as we're sort of, as I'm sort of realizing here, um, it's connected both to this idea of space, but also back to this idea of trapping, because uh, we have this, this discourse and trapping of a kind of ever opening trap form, right? At the far end, we've got the, the like sort of maim and kill traps at, you know, near to that, you've got the like catch in a cage kind of trap, but then a little farther beyond that, you have that, like, I don't want to catch the reindeer in a cage, but I would like to drive them around the countryside and get them to the places I want them to be. And you move 
to be not too opaque about it from the sort of Foucault to this Deleuze moment, or you move from this like enclosures uh, and a concern with sort of how people are put into boxes to this modulation of control thing, right? Where maybe the way that we sort of capture things is not by snatching them into boxes and crushing them, um, but by just like altering their conditions of existence so that they do what we want. The reindeer come to the places we want them to come to, you know, and maybe there's a little mutualism. The reindeer gets something out of it, right? It's not the it's not the worst thing in the world for the reindeer um, until the end. Uh, and so, you know, and people get things out of it too. Uh, and so, yeah, there's this connection between this kind of pastoral form of 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 trapping, right? Literal pastoralism, uh, and what Foucault would call pastoral power, or this kind of pastoral control uh, over over objects. So um, this this chapter on this sounds like it's all over the place, but this, which it is. This chapter on on on, on parks uh, is partly about the way that people use these natural metaphors, not just for sort of garden variety. Nat- Sorry. Jesus garden, a uh, garden variety, naturalizing, right? Not just to say like, yeah, yeah. The thing that I'm doing is totally fine. Cause it's like nature. I don't think that's what they use them for. Um, but to make sense of their sort of weirdly bounded control, right? They use, they use these metaphors to say, well, like I'm a gardener of data. I don't get to decide what grows precisely or how it grows, right? I get to plant things. I get to tend to things. I do all this kind of work. I have a strong hand in it, but I'm not the ultimate boss of what's going on. The sort of vital force comes from outside of me. Um, so I think, I think people use these metaphors in that space to talk about that. Um, but it also is a way of talking about the kind of control that they have over people, right? Of saying like, hey, the users of this system are influenced by me, right? And I'm doing it on purpose. That's the point of these systems. I'm trying, as a developer, I, you know, I'm trying to make this happen. And so uh, it's a very ambivalent position, uh, it's a position that simultaneously says, yes, I acknowledge that I control sort of a lot of what's going on here, um, but I also don't control everything, right? I And in fact, like my main experience, and I, I don't know why I've slipped into the first person here, I don't design these systems, but a designer of these systems spends a lot of their time running into things that they are not the boss of, right? Running into problems that they did not cause directly. Uh, and so that's a very significant experience for the people who build these systems, right? To say like, what I'm working on is lively material. It sort of exceeds my grasp. Uh, And I think they use the figure of like the park, the farm, the garden uh, to kind of index that, that kind of bounded control. Um, But yeah, but it also then happens within this kind of space as well. So it's that this chapter sort of is the fusion of that stream, that that line from traps and this other line from, from the sort of spatial metaphorizing. Well, and the, and the, um, I mean, you open the chapter, if I, if I recall correctly, sort of you're at whisper and you're with someone and the person is taking pride in just sort of picking around a bunch of data and around the algorithm and making small tweaks to sort of correct things, right? And uses this metaphor as sort of tending to the garden or, you know, and weeding out errors um, as a way of sort of, you know, as, as a, as an, uh, a routine and repetitive activity uh, of gardening and tending. Um, and so I wonder, you know, in this metaphor, uh, does wildness come into play? Like, do they see a sort of, do they see an area that pre that sort of exists before their activity and that their activity is itself transforming a music space into a garden from the wildness of, of nature? Yes, for sure. I think that, that there's a lot of sort of different 
kinds of wildness that you might encounter in this in this space i think the most common one would be right like imagine that you're 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 a streaming service and you've moved into like a new market somewhere this is very connected to this colonialism question also right but like the metadata that will come you know all the sort of information about the artists and the songs and stuff is usually in a mess messy form no matter what not because it came from any particular place but if it's new it's going to be a mess because most record companies actually don't do a very good job of maintaining their metadata, it turns out. Uh, And so, yeah, they describe this as being very wild and that like, you don't know, like it's got to be processed. It's got to be sort of organized, be made useful. Um, And so there's that, that kind of like exterior wildness. I don't know if this is overstretching the metaphor, but then you've also then got that sort of interior wildness, that kind of fundamental, like, this is, they aren't saying this, the fundamental like Elan Vital of like what's getting, of like, people like doing stuff, right? There's a, there's a fundamental liveliness uh, to what's going, what they're dealing with, right? And I think that um, what I do in the chapter on parks is there's a little bit of a critique of data metaphor scholarship, because there's a lot of writing out there about how certain metaphors for data are bad because they're naturalizing, right? So data is the new water, data is the new oil. Well, this is bad because it naturalizes data, right? It removes the human, it stops us from thinking about all of the labor that goes into it and so on. And so in certain contexts, I think those critiques are really useful. In this context, I wanted to say, what else is going on here? Because I don't think that these people are trying to just like lie to themselves or to me to be like, yeah, 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 no, this is objective and fine. Like everything's chill and good. Cause that's clearly not what is happening, right? When they're talking about like, this is a gardener, this is a farm, or I'm dealing with some sort of wild data. They're not saying like, yeah, yeah, that's natural. That's just the way it should be. They're actually trying to deal with their role in these things. And so I, I make the point in the book that like park metaphors, garden metaphors, these aren't nature right? They're parks, they're gardens. They're actually these weird forms that are the intersection of technology, nature, and culture together, right? And I think that's right. I I think that's actually like not an unreasonable metaphor to use. Um, You know, we don't want to forget the human hand and the fact that a lot of the data is, you know, derived in certain ways. Uh, You know, we're not going to pretend it came from nowhere, but like it's, it's not unreasonable for them to sort of use that kind of metaphorizing to talk about this experience, right? I think that they're using it to try to say, what is this? Like, I, I recognize that I'm in charge of a lot of things, but I'm not totally in charge. And so someone who says that like, oh yeah, anything that popped out of my recommender system is somehow just like a reflection of me. That doesn't make sense because all this other stuff is happening, right? So they're dealing with that. They're trying to think about like, what the, what are the limits of their control? What are their responsibilities um, to the various entities involved in, in getting music into the world? Um, and so I'm trying to sort of sketch out what that is. It's limited in some ways. I think it's, you know, it doesn't do a lot of the things we might want it to do. Um, but I think it, it it's what they do. Mm-hmm. Like the metaphor doesn't do a lot of what we would want it to do, you mean? Yeah, like they're, you know, the usual metaphor critique is an oversight critique, right? It's like, oh, well, your metaphor leaves out X, which it does. You know, this metaphor that, okay, uh, that, that happens. Um, but it's, uh, you know, the one of the big things that's missing, for instance, is like musicians. <laughs> musicians are missing a lot uh, in here. And it's funny because they are missing so much that they're really missing a lot from my book because they're not talked about or they weren't. I think they're talked about more now. They weren't talked about a lot then. Like music kind of referred to a corpus of recorded stuff. There's music. There were listeners. 
But like the artists themselves, they've more recently become uh, an object of concern. I just know from keeping up with people uh, who I know from the field, but like, that's something that's not in there, right? You don't have a sense of like who in this metaphor, if data is like a dirt is dirt and, and, and we're doing gardening, like where, what are the musicians? Are they the like microbes? What are they? Are they like worms? I don't like, I don't know what the, what the appropriate metaphorical extension is, but absolutely, you know, it doesn't get you everything. So I talk in the book about how there's a form of care in play here where people talk about caring for music and that caring for something as abstract as music can be a little bit misleading because you can substitute that for like caring for musicians, for instance, right? Uh, Caring for music does not mean that you are like working in the best interest of musicians necessarily. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so, you know, on a bit of a lighter note, um, hmm. what's your favorite part of the book? Oh my Do you God. have one? What's my favorite? I shouldn't say it this way because, but it is true. The prologue. I wrote the, I wrote the prologue last. It's the one part that really has like no root in the dissertation. Um, Sorry, that's a total lie. It's got a little root in the dissertation. Um, but I, I remember just like setting up a new document and writing from scratch. And it was so liberating. So to anyone who's working on a book out of their dissertation, write something that's not in the dissertation at some point, because it's so freeing to be like, oh, this is the <laughs> one part that I haven't worked over a million times. You know, I haven't given a hundred talks on it. I haven't like thought it through you know, 20 different ways. So I, I really like the prologue. I think that was a, it was a fun thing to write and it's a nice, I think it captures something interesting. There's a description in the prologue of um, the music that was played in the office where I did field work. And I just want to put on the record here that that's real. Like I give an example where there's like a sequence of weird songs that were played because there's a shared community playlisting app that they were using at the time. And at, during my field work, I downloaded the history of that, like all the music that was played on that system for a week. So I have the files over my computer. So I went in and I picked, I was like a real, I picked a a real actual sequence of of, of music um, so that I could, you know, give that feeling of authenticity. Uh, The prologue I think was the most fun for me to write. It's fun to read too. It was fun to read. It was a nice introduction. Um, um, Has the writing of this book opened up any, um, you know, new research questions? Yeah. Well, so the, the, um, the big thing that came out of this book and it, I, well, okay. The big thing that came out of this book was that I'm really interested in these questions about how attention is measured, right? So these dwell time questions we talked about earlier, like how do you know a system works? And so this, the, the most recent project I've been working on sort of since this has been a project about attention uh, and sort of the meaning of attention, right? What, and the meaning of attention, why, why is it valuable? How is it valuable? How do people in different domains think about it? Usually focused on machine learning. So I've been doing a bunch of interviews and a little bit of field work around that question. Uh, and really central to this new project is uh, a sort of detailed study, you, this may be unsurprising, of as many different metrics for attention as I can find. Because I really enjoy doing this kind of close reading of metrics that I got to do a little bit of at various points in the book. Uh, and so there's gonna be a lot of that in the, in the, new, in the new book, because, um, you know, I want, I'm doing things like interviewing the people who sort of came up with dwell time as a measure in the first place. And, you know, talking to them about what they're doing or, you know, a lot of the new generative, um, AI models that people are worried about now, you know, the text generating models and image ones, those are all based around a kind of 
software uh, system that's called attention. Uh, and so I've interviewed people who develop that to say like, okay, what do you think attention means in your domain? Um, and so I had this moment where I was like, that's what I'm interested in. I'm, I'm interested in like that and also ethnographic attention, right? Like how do anthropologists pay attention? How do we think about anthropology or ethnography as a form of attention? And I thought, oh, this is interesting. I've taught a seminar for a few years called how to pay attention, um, which let me sort of read a bunch in this. And I went back to my dissertation uh, a while ago just to look for something. And I found that the conclusion of my dissertation, I forgot this somehow. You know how it is. You finish a dissertation, you're like, I don't know what's in here. It's called Toward an Anthropology of Attention. I had no idea. I swear to God, I thought that I made it up again. So I I reinvented this project. I already (laughs) knew when I finished my dissertation, like as a professor, I thought, okay, now let's do it. I don't know. Attention sounds cool. Totally forgot. Totally forgot that it's the conclusion of my dissertation. So I went back and I was like, hey, this is kind of good, actually. I'm going to use this for (laughs) for the proposal that I'm working on now. Um, So it grows grows very directly out of the, uh, the earlier project. I mean, I, you know, I won't lie that as, I mean, I knew that this was your, the project you were working on these days and, um, uh, you know, it's on your website and stuff anyway. And, and so as I was reading the book, I was just like, oh, I could totally see where all, where your curiosity about attention totally comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Like there were so many moments in the book where I was just like, oh, this is just a ten, you know, a, attention is just a bit of a tangent from here. Like it's really not that far away. Um, and so are you working with any specific domain? Like, so the, uh, the- the new project, I should, I shouldn't, I shouldn't uh, affirm this on the record. Probably um, right now, uh, I'm thinking of turning it into a book. Actually, before doing the sort of article run, partly because of what I mentioned earlier, like reworking the same material over and over, I found very tiring. And so, I like the idea of like sort of writing the whole book from scratch, like as as the starting point. We'll see if I hold to that. Um, but I've been focusing primarily on sort of the uh, the the life of attention in and around machine learning, partly just because that's where I, I know things, right? I'm familiar. Um, partly because we have this rise of attention mechanisms within neural networks is a technical thing that I was really interested in. Um, I mean, I, the, the, the sort of sh- the short version is, you know, people were really worried with the rise of something like GPT-3, which can generate all these texts, this text really easy, that it might be used against people uh, in what the sociologist uh, Zainab Tufekci calls denial of attention attacks. So the idea is like you can just overwhelm people or or as Steve Bannon would say, flood the zone with excrement, right? This idea that you can just like, you know, produce so much junk that you you don't have to censor people, you just can like drown them out. Uh, And I thought this was a really interesting problem because you've got this machine that's built around a kind of computational technique of attention, whatever that is, um, that's becoming a threat to human attention. And what's up with that, right? Like, like, again, we're back to this humans and machines thing that animated my interest in this first book. Uh, what's going on with this rivalry between human and machine attention? Are they the same kind of thing? Like, are they in, in some sort of negative relationship with each other? Do they, yeah, what does it even mean to say that a machine has attention? And so that, that's sort of where I've been focusing. I've done a little field work at a, a workshop uh, at um, uh, one of the big neural net conferences called NeurIPS recently. They had, a, they had a whole workshop about attention mechanisms and connections to attention and co- computational neuroscience and stuff. So I was a, a happy as a clam uh, in, in there. And a lot of, yeah, a lot of interviews with people in sort of different domains. But what happened was I was kind of looking for a field site and I realized that I was accumulating all these super interesting interviews with people working in apparently disparate spots. And 
all were using attention. They were all using it a little differently, a little similarly. So the book project right now is called Attention Fragments and is going to be a lot of short chapters about this stuff. So rather than having like one big field site, um, the idea is to do this kind of like scattershot sampling of attention discourse close to machine learning, but not exclusively on machine learning, and try to present that as a kind of description of about what attention means right now. This will be very interesting to revisit in a couple of years when we see whether I've actually done this or not, but that's the plan right now. I think it sounds great. I have one more burning question about this because I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Is, um, so in the research itself, are you distinguishing between attention as mobilized within sort of discussions of business modeling and monetization or attention that's just being mobilized as a sort of organizing principle within machine learning, you know, research of machine learning and stuff? So I think it's all glommed together, right? So you've got like business models where you're trying to say, you know, we want to capture more eyeballs or we want to capture attention. And that clearly means something different than someone saying like human attention is being harmed by using social media or something like that, right? Um, But there's a connection there, right? There's some kind of loose coordination. So that's what I'm really interested in. And this, this way that to get sort of geeky about it, I think of attention as being a key symbol, in Sherry Ortner's sense of the term from her 1972 article on key symbols. Sorry. (laughs) The the takeaway is that uh, I'm really interested in attention, not attention per se, but attention as an idea that people use to make sense of the world. And it sounds like a hedge and it sounds like a sort of classic anthropological clutch to be like, oh, I'm not talking about like the actual thing. I'm talking about like the idea of the thing. But attention is a very, very, very powerful idea um, that I think we see in a lot of domains where people are like, you know what you need to understand what's going on here? The concept of attention. So it gets a lot of credit. Um, So I'm working on one of these fragments right now, actually, as a conference paper, um, which is about ethnographers. So I think one thing that ethnography texts do is suggest that what makes ethnography different from like investigative journalism or just from like being alive and like going and like living your life, maybe it's a special kind of attention that you pay. So a lot of people make this argument. And so I'm, I'm now collecting examples of people making this argument to start to locate them in a broader history of attention to say, what's going on with the valorization of attention right here? Because I find those arguments so persuasive. I think it's, I think they make a lot of sense to me. And so of course I have to go and try to like pick them apart and knock them down and be like, well, how are we like, what is this? Like, what, why do we think attention is going to solve our problems uh, here as, as a concept? So it's a lot to say, including some lines about like maybe paying attention isn't good necessarily. We have this assumption that attention is like a normative good, um, but it doesn't have mm-hmm. to be. I don't know. Sorry, yeah. this is a bunch of stuff, but it'll be fun. No, that's that's great. That <laughs> sounds great. Okay, well, uh, again, thanks very much for the talk. It was it was really good to to have the conversation.